Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with President Biden's remarks today on the anniversary of the January 6th storming of the Capitol, in which he accused Trump of holding, quote, a dagger at the throat of America as the GOP, which the former president controls, moves aggressively to suppress the votes of Democrats using the stop-the-steal lie that Republican votes are not being counted. Joining us is Ellie Honig, who served as an assistant U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York for eight years and as the director of the Division of Criminal Justice at the Office of the Attorney General of the State of New Jersey for five years. He's the author of Hatchet Man, How Bill Barr Broke the Prosecutor's Code and Corrupted the Justice Department, and is executive director at Rutgers Institute for Secure Communities, as well as a legal analyst for CNN. We will discuss how all those who entered the Capitol by force a year ago should be charged with a felony, and that what happened was an insurrection warranting sedition charges, which under the 14th Amendment bars those found guilty from future political office. Then we'll look into who the January the 6th insurrectionists actually were and how the Stop the Steal movement since then has moved from the fringes of the far right to the mainstream of the Republican Party, with 21 million Americans convinced Trump won and Biden is illegitimate and that violence will be necessary to right this imaginary wrong. Joining us is Robert Pape, a professor of political science at the University of Chicago specializing in international security affairs. His current research focuses on the demographic makeup and motivations of the January 6th rioters, and he has an article at Foreign Policy, The January 6th Insurrectionists Aren't Who You Think They Are. Then finally, we'll examine how the coup plot preceded January the 6th, and that the insurrection was Plan B after the coup to overturn the electoral count failed, thanks to Vice President Pence's adherence to the Constitution. Joining us is Sidney Blumenthal the former assistant and senior advisor to President Bill Clinton and senior advisor to Hillary Clinton, who has been a national staff reporter for The Washington Post and Washington editor and staff writer for The New Yorker. His books include the best-selling The Clinton Wars, The Rise of the Counter-Establishment and The Permanent Campaign, and his latest book is All the Powers on Earth, The Political Life of Abraham Lincoln, 1856-1860. We'll discuss his article at The Guardian, The insurrection is only the tip of the iceberg. And before we go to our first guest, in order to be free of any association with medical fraud and political fiction, I recently resigned from KPFK, Pacifica's Los Angeles station. So background briefing now is completely independent and remains commercial free, corporate free, but relies entirely on your support to keep providing you with the daily briefing which is free to the public. To those of you who can support us for as little as $5 a month, we hope that you become subscribers by making a tax-deductible donation to our non-profit foundation, the Public Truth Media Foundation, at publictruthmedia.org or at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate. And thank you for keeping us on the air on a growing number of radio stations across the country and online as we continue to build a reality-based community in post-truth America at this critical time when we must engage fully in the political warfare battles underway as the next few years will decide the fate and future of American democracy itself. And joining us now is Ellie Honig, who served as an assistant United States attorney in the Southern District of New York for eight years and as director of the Division of Criminal Justice at the Office of the Attorney General of the State of New Jersey for five years. He's the author of Hatchet Man, 
how Bill Barr broke the prosecutor's code and corrupted the Justice Department, and the executive director at Rutgers Institute for Secure Communities, as well as a legal analyst for CNN. Welcome to Background Briefing, Ellie Honig. Thanks for having me, and always a pleasure to talk with you. Well, thank you, Ellie. And I want to talk, of course, about Merrick Garland and his address yesterday. But I also, I think we we have to obviously touch upon President Biden's um, fairly passionate address today, where he accused former President Trump of spinning a web of lies, imperiling democracy. He said that Trump and his allies are holding a dagger at the throat of America. I must say, in many ways, I wish he would have said this earlier, because this thing's getting out of control, this this alternative history that's continually being built, and the massive denial and the rewriting and whitewashing of history about what happened one year ago. So what's your feelings on that? I thought the speech from the president today was a badly needed moment of moral and factual clarity. And, and I agree with you. I think there's really two things that have happened in the year since the January 6th attack. Uh, one is just outright denialism and revisionist history uh, that you're seeing from the former president, Donald Trump, and many of his most loyal followers. That, of course, is incredibly dangerous. But also, in addition to that, you're just sort of seeing the natural fading of memory and attention. And, and, you know, we get numb to things, right? We've been hearing about it every day. We've seen the videos. And after a certain point, you build up, I guess, a, a thicker skin. And it starts to seem just like this thing that happened. And I think it's important that we take a, a, an occasion like this, the one-year anniversary, to remind ourselves of not only how bad it was on the ground there at Capitol Hill, but also the broader meaning and just how much of a threat we're facing right now to our democracy. But what's particularly depressing, uh, I find, uh, Ellie, is that today, Senator Chuck Schumer and particularly Amy Klobuchar, she spoke about the horrors of that day, and so did Schumer, of course, but they're speaking to a essentially an empty chamber. There's not one Republican in the Senate chamber. So they've decided to boycott the day and go back to the district or do whatever they're doing. But that's a terrible signal, isn't it? I mean, doesn't that play into the idea that this thing didn't really happen, the thing that we saw on television? It's become a litmus test for certain Republican politicians, many of them, I think safe to say the majority, which is simply this, fealty to Donald Trump and nothing else. And look, there has been reporting that I would sort of separate the group in, into three categories. One is those who have been courageous enough and clear-eyed enough to come forward and say this was utterly unacceptable. Of course, led by Liz Cheney, you have Adam Kinzinger, you have a handful of others, fairly small. Then you have your group, and there's been plenty of reporting about this, of people who really do understand how bad this was, but are just too scared, just fear for their political future and don't have the guts to stand up against Donald Trump and say what they know. And then I think you have also a very small portion of people who truly do believe this nonsense from Donald Trump. I'm not even sure Donald Trump himself truly believes it, but he's uh, he's such a skilled dissembler that I think he's able to convince himself of, of these lies. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think there is a real problem with uh, acceptance of this or acknowledgement of what happened, particularly from the Republican Party. Well, it seems, though, and I, I, I'm wondering whether this would be helpful, that what we're really talking about here is something in the purview of psychiatrists, because if you follow what this House Select Committee released the text messages from from Fox's um, Sean Hannity to 
Mark Meadows, Trump's former chief of staff, uh, that were released, I think, yesterday, they make it clear that Hannity was trying to talk to Trump after, particularly on uh, January the 10th, to get him to basically accept that he lost the election, to go back down to Mar-a-Lago and lick his wounds and figure out what he's going to do with his life. And Hannity's text revealed that he he got nowhere with Trump. And it seems to me what happened there is pretty obvious, that this is a man, former President Trump, who is a chronic narcissist, whose ego simply couldn't handle that he lost, uh, that he was defeated. And because of this sick man's tortured ego, all of this agony is happening to the United States and this continuation of division simply because this one man won't accept reality. And then he's turned around and created his own reality. But the frightening part of it is that millions of Americans have bought in to this completely fictional, distorted reality. Well, it's interesting because if you talk to people and hear from people who speak publicly who know Donald Trump and have known him for years and knew him well, whether going back to his days in the Trump org, you know, even before he was a politician, they were saying, many of them were saying, even before the election, he will never accept an election defeat. And by the way, there was already evidence of that, right? He, he, he falsely claimed that he had beaten Hillary Clinton in the popular vote, which he didn't. Look, he won that election, but he didn't win the popular vote. And when he lost the primary to Ted Cruz, he claimed it was voter fraud. It was voter fraud. So people who knew Donald Trump saw this coming, said there's no way he will ever acknowledge or accept defeat, period. That turned out to be true. And I think I agree with you that a lot of this trauma that's been visited on our country is is due to just the sort of appeasement of this one man's ego. But it's more than that. It, it's 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 not just that he has this ego. He certainly does. But it's that he has such a devout following and so much political support, particularly uh, or almost exclusively in the Republican Party. And I think a lot of people are, are a lot of our l- let's let's take examples. Right. Kevin McCarthy explicitly called out the president on January 13th of last year, seven days after the attack, saying he bears responsibility. Well, since then, McCarthy has done a complete 180. Why is that? Because Donald Trump has so much support across the country. I mean, you know, he he polls at anywhere from 30 to 35 to 40 percent approval rating. But if you you were to limit that to the Republican Party, that's virtually all coming from Republican voters. So he's got a plurality of Republican support. And I think People who are sort of doing the utilitarian math here, politicians who want to survive and thrive and be reelected and perhaps become Speaker of the House, have decided to put on this act, to go along with this sham, even though they know better. So I think both of those things are sort of driving these false narratives forward. And again, I'm speaking with Ellie Honig, who served as an assistant United States attorney in the Southern District of New York for eight years and as a director of the Division of Criminal Justice in the Office of the Attorney General of the State of New Jersey for five years. He's the author of Hatchet Man, How Bill Barr Broke the Prosecutor's Code and Corrupted the Justice Department, and the executive director at Rutgers Institute for Secure Communities, as well as a legal analyst for CNN. But the scary part of these false narratives is that they've migrated from the kind of proud boys and these right-wing militias and anti-Semitic groups and white supremacist groups, many of whom were present a year ago storming the Capitol. But the work that's being done by Robert Pape at the University of Chicago to analyze exactly who showed up and stormed the Capitol, a lot of them were kind of ordinary middle-class people. Many had companies and jobs, and many, even some flew there in executive jets. Um, he's done more and more research now, and it indicates that this stop-the-steal lie has migrated into the kind of middle-class 
not just from the fringes, the right-wing fringes, but into the middle class. And when you're talking about a country with about 400 million guns in the hands of private citizens and Robert Pape's research indicating that there are at least 22 million Americans who believe that Trump is a legitimate president and that Biden's an usurper and that violence will be necessary to make things right. That is the scariest uh, combination that I can imagine, and I, I fear for our future. It is alarming to see that, and there have been polls done, broad polls, that show that – I can't quote the number off the top of my head, but but really stunning numbers of, of Americans, particularly Republicans, believe this. And again, I, I don't know whether people truly believe it or it's just sort of become a signal of some sort to show loyalty or fealty. But um, yeah, I think, look, that there, there's a real threat here that needs to be addressed by uh, certainly the January 6th committee, but also by the Justice Department. Well, how did you think Merrick Garland did on Wednesday in addressing that threat? I thought Merrick Garland's words were strong and appropriate. Um, And had Merrick Garland given that speech 10 months ago when he took office in March of 2021 as a former DOJ prosecutor, I would have said, good, great. He said all the right things. He signaled that we're going to go after everybody, no matter what station they're at, no matter what level of power. Uh, Obviously, the people who stormed the Capitol, but beyond that, too. The problem is here we are 10 months later and his actions so far have not matched that rhetoric. They've not matched the rhetoric that we saw yesterday. We have seen 700 some prosecutions of people who stormed the Capitol, the the people who physically went into the Capitol. Those are cases that have to be prosecuted. They're important, but they're also not the heavy power sources. And by the way, even within those 700 prosecutions, three federal judges at least have called into question DOJ's leniency and inconsistency in how they've prosecuted those cases. We've seen people getting misdemeanor plea deals when they should have been charged with felonies. We've seen people get probation sentencing recommendations from DOJ when they need to be doing jail time. So I'm not saying that that entire effort has been a failure. I'm saying it's been uneven. But beyond that, I've not seen any tangible signal, sign, evidence, indication that Merrick Garland is in a serious way pursuing potential criminal charges or criminal investigation of Donald Trump, of his top advisors, both in the administration and also his sort of uh, loony bins who are over at the Willard, the Steve Bannon, Rudy Giuliani's. I've not seen any serious indication that any member of Congress is under investigation or that any real power source behind this is is being investigated in a meaningful way by Merrick Garland. Now, he he reassures us that I'll follow the facts and law, facts and law, and that's fine. Every attorney general says that. Every attorney general has said that to justify every inaction and action over the course of history. So to some extent, it's standard boilerplate language. Um, I would take Merrick Garland's vows of full accountability much more seriously if there was some evidence that he was actually following through on them. Well, in particular, you mentioned the hundreds that stormed the Capitol and what, something like 700 cases. Everybody that entered the Capitol after they were doors and windows were broken were committing a felony, were they? Because under federal law, it's a, under the statutes, the obstruction of an official proceedings of the government is a felony. Exactly. And, and this is one of my objections. A lot of those people, look, the people who went into the Capitol and attacked police officers and and cause property damage are being charged appropriately with those crimes and by and large are or will go go to prison. 
there's a big group of people, however, who did not provably attack a police officer or, or destroy property. And a lot of them are being let off with misdemeanors and no jail time, um, trespass, that kind of thing. But this is not merely trespass. This is not someone, uh, you know, walking around in, in a federal park after hours or, or you know, trespassing at a, at a veterans hospital when they shouldn't be there. This was an attempt to obstruct Congress. And there is a federal felony for obstruction of Congress, specifically in this case, obstructing the counting of the electoral votes. That's what they were there for. So I think DOJ has pulled up light on those cases. So in terms then of what Garland said about the uh, harassment of Congress people, and he tried to make it bipartisan, which I think is, you know, it's, I suppose it's a worthwhile effort, but the facts simply indicate, as I mentioned earlier, there's not one Republican in the Senate chamber today observing the one-year anniversary. So the Democrats are standing there alone, which I think tells you a lot. Mm -hmm. So what did you take? What did you take away from his talk about the intimidation? You know, and it's going on at school boards and at election boards. It's clearly a strategy on the part of Bannon and these Republicans. And a lot of apparently these right wing militia groups are involved in this intimidation. It looked to me or sounded to me like Garland was trying to broaden the appeal uh, of his statements there and, 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 you know, steer clear of being accused of sort of anything political. Uh, but I, and I, I, I do think he was correct to link what we saw happening on January 6th to broader trends in the society, lack of civility, and, and beyond that, um, even aggression and violence at times. I do not think it, it was accurate or, or fair for him to sort of both sides it. This is not an equal thing. I mean, the, the FBI itself has found that the greatest threat right now uh, within in the world of domestic extremism is coming from right wing domestic extremism. And Donald Trump continually denied that, um, as did William Barr, um, contrary to the actual findings of the FBI. And I think Merrick Garland uh, could have been clearer, should have been clearer that this is not a well, well, you know, the fact that you can point to one or two examples on each side doesn't mean it's equal or equivalent. And so so I think he missed uh, an opportunity there. So just in the last couple of minutes, Ellie, I'm interested in, in getting your opinion on the use of the word insurrection and sedition. It's not apparent that this is being used by the Department of Justice, by Merrick Garland, and I'm wondering why, because as you know, one of the clauses in the 14th Amendment makes it clear that anybody charged with insurrection and sedition is automatically disqualified from a future political office. So, uh, I have, oh God. Go, go ahead. What do you think? Uh, I have certainly noticed, I think it's, it's conspicuous that Merrick Garland has avoided using the phrase sedition or charging anyone with, with the crime of sedition. Instead, he's using more garden variety crimes like trespass and destruction of property. Those are all applicable, but so is sedition here. And I believe Merrick Garland is sensitive and, and doesn't want to do anything that's seen as politically explosive or, or politically controversial. But if you look at sedition under the federal criminal law, um, there's really three different ways you can prove sedition, any of three. One is the, the sort of, I guess, what normally springs to mind, which is attempt to overthrow the government, the most dramatic scenario. There's an argument that that certainly applies here. But even if you don't want to go that far, it also, the term sedition, applies to any attempt to obstruct the lawful function of the U.S. government. Again, I think <laughs> obstructing uh, Congress trying to count the electoral votes certainly counts. But even more straightforward than that 
Sedition means any effort to take over a federal or occupy a federal building or property without authorization. I mean, that happened. We saw that happen. The U.S. Capitol certainly counts as a federal building. So I think sedition charges are absolutely warranted here, certainly against the people who stormed the Capitol and probably beyond people beyond that. And I think it's it's been a failure by DOJ to um, sort of conspicuously steer around those charges in that term. Well, the federal government. Uh, under Donald Trump, Sean went after those left-wing protesters in Portland who were firing fireworks at the federal government. Well, they tried. I mean, there was a directive from Bill Barr, the attorney general at the time, that that U.S. attorneys should be looking at potential sedition charges there. Um, I don't believe any such charges were actually brought, but they, they certainly tried. But, but there's, there's a difference. I make no apology for any violent or unlawful protest. I don't care where it is. If you're destroying property or, or attacking a federal building, you should be charged appropriately. The difference in, with the Capitol insur- insurrection on January 6th is that was an attempt to overturn an election. That was an attempt to not just undermine, but, but undo our democracy. And, and in that respect, different from physical attacks on other uh, federal properties, which should absolutely be charged uh, and prosecuted fully. But this is different because those were not attempts to undermine our entire democracy. So just in closing, how do we move forward? Do you think that Biden today moved the needle in any way in this divided country? I'm not sure Joe Biden's speech today won over anybody who's a true believer for Donald Trump. Um, I think Joe Biden's speech was an important reminder, though, both for the group of people who uh, who believes this happened, who believes reality, but also for the group of people who maybe forgot a bit or maybe was getting a bit complacent. I think his comments were 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 clear and decisive and authoritative. Um, in terms of where we go from here, where does accountability come from? I really see two potential sources. One is the January 6th Select Committee, which I think has made remarkable progress based on what we've seen. And of course, we've not seen all they have, but they've really unearthed some some uh, really important pieces of evidence that the internal texts, the communications, just who was involved, they seem to be digging into the financing behind this. That is really important information. And they may get more soon if they win this fight to get the National Archives documents, which the Supreme Court could rule on really any day at any moment. Um, so as far as we can tell, the January 6th committee has made some really important factual discoveries and revelations. But what they can do is fairly limited. They can hold public hearings. They're going to do that. They're going to issue a report. But that's it. That's all that Congress can really do. They can reconsider some new legislation as well. If you're talking about real accountability, the kind that people feel, then you have to look at the Justice Department. And that gets back to sort of my original question, which is how willing, how able will Merrick Garland be to go over to go after not only those people who stormed the Capitol, of course, but really other people who were behind the effort to steal the election, behind the effort to obstruct Congress, behind any incitement or encouragement or financing or coordination of the January 6th attack. That ultimately, I think, determines whether we reach a point of meaningful accountability. Well, Ellie Honig, I thank you so much for joining us here today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Ellie Honig, who served as an assistant United States attorney in the Southern District of New York for eight years and as director of the Division of Criminal Justice in the office of the Attorney General of the State of New Jersey for five years. He's the author of Hatchet Man, How Bill Barr Broke the Prosecutor's Code and Corrupted the Justice Department. And he's the executive director at Rutgers Institute for Secure Communities, as well as a legal analyst for CNN. 
We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into who the January 6th insurrectionists actually were and how the Stop the Steal movement since then has moved from the fringes of the far right to the mainstream of the Republican Party. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Robert Pape, a professor of political science at the University of Chicago, specializing in international security affairs. He's the author of Cutting the Fuse, The Explosion of Global Suicide Terrorism and How to Stop It, Dying to Win, The Strategic Logic of Suicide Terrorism, and Bombing to Win, Air Power and Coercion in War. His current research focuses on the demographic makeup and motivations of the January 6th rioters, and he has an article at Foreign Policy, The January 6th Insurrectionists Aren't Who You Think They Are. Welcome to Background Briefing, Robert Pape. Thanks for having me. So your work is is extremely important in as much as what we saw, of course, on January the 6th live on television with all of those flags, uh, pro-Trump flags, and, and these militia characters and the signs and their dress and the violence that they meted out against the police, would indicate that the whole event was dominated by fringe right-wing groups and anti-Semites and white supremacists, etc. But your research indicates that that is really not the true picture, that of those over 700 who have been arrested for storming the Capitol, about 501, you have found employment data on them that half are business owners, including CEOs, white-collar occupations, including doctors, lawyers, architects, and accountants, and that uh, in terms of the more traditional right-wing militia types, only 7% were unemployed at the time compared to 25% of the usual amount of violent right-wing perpetrators arrested by the FBI and other U.S. law enforcement from 2015 to 2020. So that is a pretty surprising revelation, and it seems as if the Stop the Steal movement, which one would have thought would have ended on January the 7th with a real wake-up call to the nation, has actually metastasized into a national movement where the right-wing fringe beliefs are now mainstreamed into the Republican Party and its followers. Uh, you've summarized my uh, foreign policy piece just terrific. And so I hope your um, listeners and viewers will go to the uh, foreign policy uh, website and look at the full piece. But you've got it exactly right. What we're seeing with the insurrection is a mainstream movement. Uh, now, we're used to thinking of far right violent offenders as coming from the fringe. And there's good reason for that. Um, we have uh, the FBI. They have um, we have had right wing violent offenders for many years in this country. They are typically 25 percent or more unemployed. Typically, half of them are connected with skinhead gangs or militant groups. Um, and what we see in the Capitol Hill insurrection, the people who are charged with breaking into the Capitol, is a picture that just doesn't look like that. Uh, we are seeing essentially middle-class Americans 
Uh, we're seeing people um, people with something to lose because they have decent jobs and they have a decent economic future. We're not seeing the margins and the fringe of our society. Now, this is pretty concerning. So we went further and we conducted national surveys, nationally representative surveys, I might add, which are the gold standard of surveys. And we've discovered that the equivalent of 21 million American adults in the United States hold two radical beliefs. First, that Joe Biden is an illegitimate president because he stole the 2020 election. And second, that the use of force is justified to restore Donald Trump to the presidency. This is really quite something. Um, 21 million adults holding these two core beliefs that are almost identical, if not identical, to the beliefs of the January 6th insurrectionists. This really tells us that we have an insurrectionist movement in the country, and it's 21 million. Uh, that means it's in the mainstream. This is not just a few hundred thousand people in a popul in our huge country. So we really have to be concerned going forward that we're moving into a tinderbox of an election season. And the article at Foreign Policy points out that these 21 million Americans are active and dangerous, an estimated 2 million of them have attended a protest in the past 12 months, 4 million have prior military service, and 8 million own guns. And your study, with a margin of error, basically says that this insurrectionist movement could be as small as 13 million or as large as 28 million. And I might add to that there are over 400 million guns in the hands of civilians in this country. So this is a lethal mixture, is it not? Uh, that's exactly right. So once we have uh, mainstream support for political violence that is in the mainstream, this really is a game changer. This is very different. And this is very difficult for our political leaders to uh, come to grips with, our community leaders, our media is not used to covering it this way. Law enforcement is certainly not used to this. So all the way across uh, the spectrum, we have to have dialogue. We have to talk about the empirical reality we now face and not make these quick assumptions that, oh, yes, this is just like the fringe. This is like uh, coming from these uh, fringe right-wing websites and so forth. Well, the 21 million, their number one news source, 42% of the 21 million, their news source is Fox News, Newsmax, One America. Only 10% say their news source is uh, right-wing social media like um, Gab or Telegram. So we're so used to thinking of extremism as on the fringe, we're really not seeing yet clearly that there's a pretty big elephant in the room, a gorilla, actually. And this is going to take time for us to come to grips with as a country. So, as Abraham Lincoln warned, we are a house divided against itself. And the president today, President Biden, referred to former President Trump without naming him as holding a dagger at the throat of America. Um, I'm thinking maybe he should have said that earlier. This is a huge threat, and I'm not sure that his warnings are adequate to the uh, moment. Well, I would just sort of just say that, um, just notice that this information, our opinion polls, the analysis that we've done, 
Uh, you're here, your listeners are now hearing about this now for the first time. This really all came together um, in the middle of the fall, uh, and it became together with these multiple studies all pointing in the same direction. So this isn't just a one-off study or a random study. This is We've been doing this work now for um, 11 months at the University of Chicago, so we have a whole series of nearly a dozen different studies that we've done, and they've all come together. So um, it's going to take uh, time. I would say that what you see in President Biden's speech is that he really is reflecting this new understanding, and he's showing that he's changing his rhetoric. This doesn't sound like the rhetoric he's used before. It doesn't even reflect um, the um, domestic terrorism strategy that his team put together last spring. Why? Because we have a new reality. That was based on the idea this is all fringe. Uh, this is what you're hearing from President Biden is an understanding that we now have something in the mainstream. It's a mainstream political figure that's really driving, uh, driving the train. And it's mainstream media figures who are so popular, have many millions who watch them every night, who are voicing these sentiments. This is, this is now, we're, we're, we're not at the beginning of the end, but we are at the end of the beginning. So in a way then, Robert Pape, obviously Trump controls the GOP and he has his own propaganda uh, machine in the form of Fox and Sinclair and OANN and Newsmax and Breitbart. And to that extent then, can you hold people like Rupert Murdoch and Mark Zuckerberg as equally culpable as Trump himself? Well, I would just say that that's a whole giant question. We've been debating that for years and getting nowhere. We have an opportunity in the coming election. The coming election season is very dangerous because we have a mass of combustible sentiments that could be touched off like a wildfire with political lightning. We can't predict where the lightning will come from, just like with wildfires, but we can see the mass of those combustible sentiments. Well, we, uh, that means the wild, the season going into, uh, we're going into 2022 and then 2024, this will be a precarious season. This is, this is ripe for possibilities of replay of elect, stolen election violence claims. Well, but we also have an opportunity going forward because we can ask every candidate for every office as they run for election, the same question we ask in our CPOS, that is our Chicago project on security and threats questions in our survey. We can ask a simple question. We found that, that Americans uh, believe, some Americans believe that the use of force to restore Donald Trump to the presidency is justified. Well, we can ask our political candidates, what do you think about that? What do you think about that? We should know what side our political candidates are on. Are they on the side of violence or are they on the side of democracy? We can, every reporter can ask every candidate that question. Every citizen at town halls can ask candidates that question. We really can do something about this. And we don't need to just sort of say, oh, yes, it's going to have to go in these, you know, sort of down these rabbit holes uh, and so forth. No, this is what makes America a great democracy. We ask our candidates what they think about the big issues. Well, indeed, what happened on January the 6th, for all intents and purposes, and most people see it that way, was an insurrection, and therefore those guilty that stormed the Capitol, which is a felony in itself, uh, and they haven't been treated as felons, uh, most of them. And frankly, we're talking about sedition, 
and what you're just talking about now is people who believe at this point that Trump should be in the White House and Biden is an imposter and violence may be necessary to right that wrong. That's sedition. So in terms of sedition, the 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution says in one of its clauses that anybody guilty of sedition cannot run for public office. So how do you tie those two things together? Uh, Again, I say we just focus on that we have an election coming. We have 435 members of Congress that are running for uh, re-election. They're running for election. We have a third of the senators running for re-election or election. Um, And so what we should be doing is focusing on the election system we have. And in that system, those candidates running for election, they will have debates with each other. They will be asked questions by reporters, and they'll be asked questions by citizens. And the number one question in the country today, more important than any other question, is how do they answer that question in our CPOST poll, in our CPOST survey? Again, we found that some Americans believe that the use of force is justified to restore Donald Trump to the presidency. What do you, candidate X, think about that question? What do you think? Are you on the side of violence or democracy? This gets right to the heart of the matter. We're not talking about impeachment, yes, no. We're not talking about, you know, complicated concepts or prosecutorial language. We're getting right to the heart of the matter, and we can just ask them as they run for election. I mean, I, I, I like what you're telling us. I think it's extremely important. I just don't know how you disarm and defuse a lie because you got so many... The idea that Trump could come back into office based on a lie and a fiction is frightening. And a lot notice, of people, what I'm say, notice what I'm saying is I'm not telling you we need to sit people down and deprogram their brainwashing and all this sort of stuff. Um, right. I've been studying political violence for 30 years. Uh, that kind of approach never works, or at least mm. barely, almost never works, and it's not working now. And a lot of people are saying, well, therefore, we can't do anything. Uh, no, that's not the case. Um, the the, the, the uh, idea that I'm putting forward, this approach, um, which if you will push this, if other people in the media will push this, if our, some of our political leaders will push this, this will have um, this will bring new information to people as they go into the voting booth. Right now, we really don't know where people are. Uh, te- the, basically, we don't really have a temperature on them of where they are on violence versus democracy. There's only a handful of the politicians who have really come out in favor of violence. And then it's like with jokes and then they kind of take it back. Um, let's really ask the question, do you, again, just to go back to our University of Chicago project on security and threat survey, there's a straightforward question we've asked to um, uh, many Americans here. We've asked it multiple times. Now we should be asking it to our candidates for office, uh, which is, um, do you agree that the use of force to restore Donald Trump to the presidency is justified? That's a very simple question, and it doesn't require complicated bills and complicated understandings. And that's a question that can be asked to every candidate for every office in the upcoming 2022 elections across our country. But just in closing, Robert Pape, I'm a journalist, and I would ask a follow-up question because a lot of these candidates might well lie to you. So what would the follow-up question be? 
Well, look, this is this is what happens in our political discussions. Do we trust their answers? And then this is what this is the nature of our of our political system. Uh, what happens is over time, voters take the measure of the person, mm-hmm. and this is how we this is how our country has been a democracy. And <laughs> this is what makes our country a great democracy: is that we use elections to sort things out and get information, and then figure out what we think. Uh, about those candidates and what their values are. And this is the number one important value we need to know about our candidates right now is their position on violence versus democracy. If they waffle or so forth, well, that's telling you something right there. And a lot of voters are street smart um, and they're going to start to see through that kind of stuff. Um, And so, but the fact of the matter is this is what we need, what we, when we need, what we need dialogue about in the country is, how to come to grips with this political reality, and really, who are we? Are we, dem- are we for democracy, or are we for violence to win? Well, Robert Pape, I think you've got a brilliant idea, and I'm going to do what I can to propagate it in terms of a kind of um, important litmus test here in uh, this turbulent year coming up, and let's hope that we can disarm the country and these political warfare battles don't involve violence. I thank you for joining us. Okay, absolutely. Glad to be here. Bye-bye. And again, I mean, speak of Robert Pape, who's a professor of political science at the University of Chicago, specializing in international security affairs. He's the author of Cutting the Fuse, The Explosion of Global Suicide Terrorism and How to Stop It, Dying to Win, The Strategic Logic of Suicide Terrorism, and Bombing to Win, Air Power and Coercion in War. His current research focuses on the demographic makeup and motivations of the January 6th rioters, and he has an article at Foreign Policy, The January 6th Insurrectionists Aren't Who You Think They Are. We're going to take a brief station break, and we're back looking into how the coup plot preceded January the 6th, and that the insurrection was Plan B after the coup to overturn the Electoral Count failed, thanks to Vice President Pence's adherence to the Constitution. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Sidney Blumenthal, the former assistant and senior advisor to President Bill Clinton and a senior advisor to Hillary Clinton. He has been a national staff reporter for The Washington Post, Washington editor and staff writer for The New Yorker, and his books include the best-selling The Clinton Wars, The Rise of the Counter-Establishment, and The Permanent Campaign. And his latest book is All the Powers on Earth, The Political Life of Abraham Lincoln, 1856 to 1860. And he has an article at The Guardian, The Insurrection is Only the Tip of the Iceberg. Welcome to Background Briefing, Sidney Blumenthal. Thank you, Ian. Well, thank you, Sidney. And I think your article does us a real service here because you make the distinction between the coup and the insurrection and that the coup preceded the insurrection. And if you will, uh, the insurrection was plan B because the coup had failed, the coup being month-long efforts by Trump and others culminating with meetings in the White House just prior to January the 6th where they tried to strong-arm Pence 
into decertifying the election of Joe Biden. In fact, the House Select Committee has texts from Congressman Jim Jordan, one of the main coup guys, more or less saying on January the 6th, we failed. In other words, they failed to get Mike Pence to decertify the election in spite of them trying to hold things up with bogus objections to the uh, electors as the count was being made in the House. And it was Trump himself who triggered the insurrection in his speech on the ellipse on January the 6th, where he directed the crowd to the Capitol. In other words, he'd failed, and then he more or less told the crowd to go after Mike Pence because he blamed Mike Pence and said that your democracy is being stolen, your vote's being stolen, and off you go. And that's what happened. I mean, I'm surprised that people haven't figured this out yet. Well, as I wrote in my piece in The Guardian, Ian, the coup was months in gestation and involved hundreds, if not thousands of people in the Republican Party. This came out of the central organizations of the Republican right, particularly those that orbited around something called the Center for National Policy, which is a a nexus of more than 400 right-wing conservative Republican leaders. And this idea of the coup came out of those organizations that had been devoted to voter suppression over the years. And they began thinking about Trump losing months before the election, even years before the election, and they began working towards it. And they developed a whole coup theory on how to stage a coup. And it happened long before the insurrection. The coup theory was that they would get the Trump electors in the swing states that had gone for Biden to be ready uh, on a moment's notice. And the legislatures then would oppose the certification of the Biden victory. All of this was aimed at Vice President Pence, who had a ceremonial role, according to the uh, Vote Count Act, presiding as the president of the Senate over the joint session of Congress that ratifies the Electoral College, on a designated on um, January 6th, the only day is designated in the Constitution. And the idea was that uh, Pence would not agree to it. He would agree that instead there had been extensive fraud. He couldn't certify. The uh, vote then would not take place. The congressmen who were devoted to uh, working on the coup, and there were dozens, if not more than a hundred of them, the core of which were in the so-called Freedom Caucus, and they were uh, working very closely with Mark Meadows, the White House chief of staff, were to hold the floor, argue for fraud, and push the matter so that eventually the entire election would go to the House of Representatives, which votes by states. And those states vote on the basis of which which party controls uh, those state legislatures and uh, congressional delegations. And the idea was that the Republicans would have 26 states, and therefore Trump would be retained 
in office. And that was the coup. And there was another element to it. And, uh, and that was martial law. And that was the invocation of the Insurrection Act. And uh, you have to ask yourself if the insurrection, which happened on January 6th, which was a last ditch attempt to intimidate Mike Pence and to sustain Jim Jordan and his gang in the Congress for the coup, um, was intended also to invoke the Insurrection Act. Remember, they had uh, had uh, those Proud Boys and all the neo-Nazi militias in Washington a few weeks before it had street fights and uh, had engaged with some left-wing demonstrators. And the first thing that Trump says in his phone call with uh, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy of California, uh, who calls to uh, object to what Trump is doing in inciting the insurrection and asking him to call it off, Trump says, Kevin, those people are Antifa. In other words, left-wing anarchists. There's no evidence that's true. But the idea was, if that was true, then perhaps he would have the power to invoke the Insurrection Act. And uh, remember, General Miley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, had warned before of a Reichstag moment that Trump would stage. The Reichstag moment he refers to is in 1933 in Berlin with the burning of the German parliament that uh, Hitler seized upon, perhaps was responsible for, in order to assume absolute power over Germany. So this coup was very well developed. And again, I'm speaking with Sidney Blumenthal, a former assistant senior advisor to President Bill Clinton and a senior advisor to Hillary Clinton. He has been a national staff reporter for The Washington Post, Washington editor and staff writer for The New Yorker, and his books include the best-selling The Clinton Wars, The Rise of the Counter-Establishment, and The Permanent Campaign. And his latest book is All the Powers on Earth, The Political Life of Abraham Lincoln, 1856 to 1860. And he has an article at The Guardian, The Insurrection is Only the Tip of the Iceberg. So in other words, Sidney... Plan A is the coup that was in gestation for the longest time and involved a lot of people, including this group called the Secretive Council on National Policy, and and its members also happen to be also involved with the, the Koch Fund and American Legislative Exchange Council, and this Council on National Policy has people like Clarence Thomas's wife, uh, Jenny Thomas, and Leonard Leo of the Federalist Society, who controls a $250 million dark money fund. And then, of course, on the board of the Council on National Policy, you have Cleta Mitchell, who was on the phone call when Trump, like a mafia boss, was trying to shake down the Secretary of State of Georgia, Bad Raffensburg, and find 11,780 votes. And now, of course, one of the people in in the coup, in the House group of coup plotters, was, of course, Jody Heiss, who's now running for Secretary of State against Brad Raffensperger in Georgia. So, in other words, the coup plotters have come up with a better plan this time around. So just to get some clarity on the components here, Plan A is the coup. Plan B was marching on the Capitol, the insurrection. And Plan C 
is invoking the Insurrection Act, the martial law. Yes. Um, uh, Mike Flynn, who had been uh, Trump's a national security advisor and been convicted of uh, various felonies and pardoned by Trump, was able to operate with impunity to advance the coup. He did so with other convicted felons, uh, Stephen Bannon and Roger Stone, all allowed to operate with impunity as activists for the coup. And, and Bernard Carrick, too. And uh, Bernard Carrick, who was assisting Rudy Giuliani, Trump's personal attorney. Uh, Bernie Carrick was a convicted criminal on many charges and had been the police commissioner in New York and very close to Giuliani. But Flynn had pressed Trump, including in personal meetings, for him to declare martial law and invoke the Insurrection Act. And it appears that that was part of the coup plan. And the idea would be uh, that at some point, opportunistically, they would find a way to use that uh, to impose martial law. It could have been that um, uh, by having uh, the election drawn to the House of Representatives and the Electoral College voided and the American people's vote basically uh, suppressed, there would be mass protests as a result. And there would be protests before federal buildings. That would be a good opportunity to invoke the Insurrection Act. Uh, and then perhaps the insurrection itself, if they had created clashes with this phantom menace of Antifa that Trump referred to in his call with McCarthy. Oh, and there could have been other opportunities. But what's also clear is that um, the Joint Chiefs who are a hardly um, wild-eyed conspiracy theorists certainly thought this was a live possibility involved in a coup attempt by Donald Trump. So the insurrection then, which was prompted by Trump in his speech before the huge crowd marched on the Capitol where he said at the January 6th rally, I hope Mike is going to do the right thing. I hope so. I hope so. Because if Mike Pence doesn't do the right thing, we win the election. And then he went on to say, and if you don't fight like hell, you're, going to, you're not going to have a country anymore. So we're going to walk down Pennsylvania Avenue. I love Pennsylvania Avenue. And we're going to the Capitol. And that was game on for the insurrection. Little wonder that they had gallows built for Mike Pence and were inside the Capitol shouting, hang Mike Pence. So Trump literally put a target on, on his vice president, did he not? Um, uh, Trump targeted his vice president, and uh, certainly he was targeted by uh, members of the insurrection, apparently for um, assassination. And the insurrection itself may have had a, uh, a clear purpose, and not some, you know, wild event, as Trump said the day before in, in advertising, it will be wild. It could have been a way to prevent the certification by the Congress with um, Pence presiding over it in his ceremonial role. And once it gets past that date, 
provided by the Constitution, um, there's nothing stipulated of, of what happens. And the idea was to push this into a constitutional uh, no man's land. And the Freedom Caucus was already to uh, get up, hold the floor, object to uh, the certification, as indeed they did after the insurrection. Don't forget, Jim Jordan got up after the insurrection to object and propose that the entire election was a fraud and it should not be certified. Sure, and uh, 147 House members voted that way. Right. And since then, the Republican Party has, rather than repudiate the coup, they have been advancing it as a rolling coup, including engaging in a, a cover-up of what happened. With very few exceptions, uh, the House Republicans voted against the criminal citation of contempt for uh, Stephen Bannon and Mark Meadows, uh, referring it to the Department of Justice for their refusal to testify uh, before the House Select Committee investigating the insurrection. So they are, the House Republicans, as almost a uniform body, are engaged in a cover-up of this crime. And on the actual, in the midst of this attack on January the 6th, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy did get Trump on the phone, even though Trump was apparently enjoying watching the insurrection on television. And Trump, as you point out in your article, uh, Sidney Blumenthal's first reply to McCarthy was to repeat the falsehood that it was Antifa that had breached the Capitol. And then McCarthy argued, no, it's not Antifa, it's MAGA. I know, I'm there. Well, Kevin, said Trump, I guess these people are more upset about the election than you are. And McCarthy replied in uncharacteristic uh, display of testosterone, as you say, who the F do you think you are talking to? So this is the amazing thing. It's what happened the next day or early in the morning on the 7th. You had McCarthy saying that it was Trump's fault and holding him responsible. And then you also had Mitch McConnell even going further, more or less telling the Democrats to give them a roadmap to put this guy in jail. And suddenly it all changed. And that's the part that I don't understand is what's happened to America. This is all based upon the tortured, pathetic ego of one man who simply could not accept uh, his electoral defeat. And because of his extreme narcissism, this sick man was able to create his own reality that he actually won and that the election was stolen from him. But he has projected that reality, that fiction, onto millions of Americans. And in the prior uh, interview we just did with Robert Pape at the University of Chicago, who has done analysis of who these people are that stormed the Capitol and who are the ones that are among the 21 million Americans who believe that the election was stolen by Biden, that Trump is the rightful president, and that they're willing to use violence to restore him. This is what I find extraordinary. I mean, this is more or less than the, something that a psychiatrist rather than a political analyst maybe should look into, but the idea that this is all happening because this one sick man could not accept defeat. Well, um, Trump is convinced um, through this, um, his big lie 
that he won the election, that Biden is not the legitimate president, that the election was stolen. And uh, about 70 percent, according to many reputable polls uh, of Republicans, uh, believe the big lie. Uh, They don't accept uh, Biden as a legitimate president. And they believe this. Um, And why? It's because um, Trump has so overtaken the imagination of most Republicans that they believe that there's an existential crisis involving Donald Trump and and the United States, and that somehow if he is denied their whole idea of the United States, their very lives, uh, everything they've ever believed in will be destroyed by the peaceful transition of power in a, a free and fair election in American democracy. So this is what they've come um, to accept. But the Republican Party is the agent of this, the organizational agent. And in the conservative Republican branch of the party, which originated the coup out of their longstanding efforts at voter suppression, they have now emerged uh, a year later advancing hundreds of proposals for voter suppression in the states in order to potentially rectify uh, what they feel was a great injury and loss to them in 2020 so that it is not repeated. Um, They are intimidating local election officials. They are, uh, there are threats of violence against local election uh, officials. Um, 17 states have passed new voter suppression laws. So this, they have learned something from the coup. They're trying to take advantage of it for future elections and to make sure that uh, the will of the majority will not necessarily prevail if it goes against them. Well, Cindy Blumenthal, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Sidney Blumenthal, a former assistant and senior advisor to President Bill Clinton and senior advisor to Hillary Clinton. He has been a national staff reporter for The Washington Post, Washington editor and staff writer for The New Yorker, and his books include the best-selling The Clinton Wars, The Rise of the Counter-Establishment, and The Permanent Campaign. And his latest book is All the Powers on Earth, The Political Life of Abraham Lincoln, 1856 to 1860. And he has an article at The Guardian, The Insurrection is Only the Tip of the Iceberg. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again on Sunday with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. 
Bye for now. Disappeared by half past